0: We fight pride with more pride by saying the opposite of pride is to debase myself. And so I put myself at the center and exalt my weaknesses. There needs to be a change. This came to you, Nebuchadnezzar, because a change is needed in the way that you go about your life. You need to now pursue righteousness. You need to abandon these oppressive policies of yours. You need to change something about your life. Now, let's be very, very careful to understand what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is not telling Nebuchadnezzar how it is that he might be made right with God. Daniel is not, to use another phrase, he's not giving Nebuchadnezzar a plan of salvation. Instead, what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar is, this is how you can avert for a time the coming judgment of God. That's how he says it at the very end, that perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. He's not saying to Nebuchadnezzar, this is how your sins may be forgiven and you may be made right with God, by doing righteous things. This is not a way to be made right with God. This is a way that God is giving to Nebuchadnezzar, offering to Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar might delay for a time the coming judgment upon him. And this is so often the the consistent message of the prophets, wasn't it? Jeremiah chapter 18. If that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. God's not saying, well, this is how you're saved, by turning from your evil, because we're not saved by turning from evil. We're saved by believing and repenting. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by His work on the cross and placing our trust completely in Him and repenting of our sins. That is how we're saved. We're not saved by doing righteous things. But nevertheless, God would often say to those in the Old Covenant, this is how you may delay this coming judgment. First Kings chapter 21, Elijah and Ahab. Have you seen how Ahab, this is God, God talking to Elijah now. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days. You see, we know we're not saved by works of the law. Galatians 2 and verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus' work of atonement on the cross in which He became my sin. And by faith, I become His righteousness. That's how we're saved. But yet, God's message so often was, there is judgment coming. But that judgment can be averted, at least for a time, by changing your evil ways. Now, why would God send that message to Nebuchadnezzar? Or for that matter, why would He send it to Ahab? Or why would He send it to any of the leaders that He sent it through His prophets in the Old Testament? The purpose, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, was in order to bring about true and genuine repentance do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance of patience not knowing that god's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance or paul's words to the romans in roman's chapter 2 so paul says this is the purpose of god in his patient forbearing willingness to delay his wrath and judgment his purpose is to lead you to repentance and this is the purpose for nebuchadnezzar nebuchadnezzar if you change If you stop your oppressive ways, if you stop your unrighteous ways, then God will lengthen your time of prosperity in the hopes that repentance will come. Now, verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So God gives Nebuchadnezzar yet another year, another 12 months after this disturbing, alarming dream. Nebuchadnezzar probably has forgotten about it. But another 12 months goes by in God's patience. So at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So here we see this well-known, famous display of Nebuchadnezzar's pride as he's sort of walking around. Again, this picture, this, this old elderly man, white beard, this successful king, he has subdued all of his enemies. His enemies of Nineveh, Assyria, Egypt, they are all been subdued. The kingdom of Babylon is at its peak, at its height. The city of Babylon is truly a great city. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is being truthful here. The, the, the city of Babylon was magnificent. And he in his pride says, is this not for my glory? Reminds us, of course, of, of Agrippa and the story of the Acts. When he stands up and gives this speech and everybody says, oh, these words, they're like the words of a god, not of a man. And Agrippa says, yeah, I kind of like that. And God strikes him down in a similar way. So here we see Nebuchadnezzar gloating over his accomplishments. Which that's what Nebuchadnezzar was. Nebuchadnezzar, history knows Nebuchadnezzar as a great builder and designer. He wasn't a great war king, although they were, of course, victorious in war. But Nebuchadnezzar was known as a great builder and designer and architect. And he has built this magnificent city of ancient Babylon, which was indeed (laughs) truly magnificent. Nebuchadnezzar restored some dozen temples in the city. He had three personal palaces in the city. Of course, remember the, the hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that Nebuchadnezzar built for his wife, who was Median. That doesn't mean she was average. It means she was from the kingdom of Medes. And so she was she was homesick. So Nebuchadnezzar, in order to help her homesickness, built her one of the seven ancient seven wonders of the ancient world. It was truly a magnificent city. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that the exterior walls of Babylon were so wide that a chariot with four horses wide could ride across the top of it. It was truly a magnificent city. And Nebuchadnezzar here in his pride says, isn't this all for me? We've seen this before in Nebuchadnezzar, haven't we? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is all about Nebuchadnezzar. If there's one thing he is, it's full of himself. He was a very great and capable and, and able leader. But Nebuchadnezzar was all about Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is at the center. In fact, archaeologists have done quite a bit of work in ancient Babylon and they've, they've recovered quite a lot of artifacts there. They've recovered thousands and thousands of bricks that were used to build ancient Babylon. And do you know what's inscribed on most of them? Most of the bricks... Let me put a picture on the screens up here. This is a picture of one of the bricks recovered from ancient Babylon. And most of the bricks are this way with this inscription of Nebuchadnezzar's name on it. So you can see right there, don't, don't you see Nebuchadnezzar's name? <laughs> Where well, we're told that's Nebuchadnezzar's name. But this, most of the bricks have his name inscribed. So think of the self-centeredness of a man who builds a city and on every brick puts his name as if to say, drive the point home, this is all about me. And this is the point. Nebuchadnezzar is consumed with the sin of pride. Now, pride is the sin of putting self at the center. Pride is the sin of putting self at the center. And we know pride to be the most dangerous sin of all, the most infectious sin of all, don't we? It's almost like the root of sin, isn't it? When you think back to the experience in the garden and Eve in the garden, we can just see pride at work there. And in fact, as we trace through the story of Scripture, can't we see pride at work whenever we see sin manifesting itself? In your own life, don't you see pride at work whenever you see sin manifesting itself? So pride is a hideous, ugly sin. We know what the Bible says to us about sin. We know what God feels about sin, how He tells us repeatedly that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so we know that the sin of pride is something that is very destructive in our life. And none of us want to be prideful. If you know Jesus Christ, then you do not want to be prideful. If you if you think you know Jesus and you're okay with pride, then you have an issue, at the very least, you have an issue with your relationship with Jesus. Because none of us want to be prideful. We all want to avoid this sin of pride. But here's the thing, I think that we so often misunderstand what pride is and misunderstanding it, we fail to fight it properly. Because you see, pride can take many forms. We see here in Nebuchadnezzar only one form of pride. And that is the form of pride that exalts self. Exalts self and says, look at what I've done. Look at my accomplishments. Look at what I've built. This magnificent city of Babylon. And we can easily look at that and say, I don't want to be like that. And that's fairly easy to avoid. We can avoid this prideful sin of gloating over accomplishments. We can do that fairly easily, but pride takes many forms and that's only one of them. I think the far more common expression of pride among believers is not what we see with Nebuchadnezzar. It's something that is more subtle, more subdued. And it's not so much, look at what I've done as it is, I'm the king of my life. I'm the ruler of my life. I will do what I want. I will be what I want. I will go where I want because I'm the king of my life. It's not looking to some great city of Babylon that we've built, some great institution that we've created, some great accomplishment that we've made. It's instead just simply looking to my life and saying, I'm in charge of that. James addresses this. In James chapter 4, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. You see, what James is getting at is the kingdom of my life. The kingdom of my interests the kingdom of my hobbies, the kingdom of my schedule, or to put it another way, the kingdom of my autonomy. That is the God of this day, the God of autonomy. The God that says you are in charge of who you are. You are in charge of your you are the ruler of your life. Psalm 10 and verse 4 tells us what is the essence of pride. The essence of pride is this. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That is the essence of pride. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, Psalm 10 and verse 4 is not talking about atheists. Psalm 10 verse 4 is not saying the essence of pride are those who don't believe that God exists. That's not what Psalm 10 is is all about. What Psalm 10 and verse 4 is saying to us is that the essence of pride is the one who does not acknowledge the rulership of God over every aspect of their life. The sovereign control of God over everything that happens to you. That's what James says. That's what Psalm 10 and verse 4 says, that the essence of pride is looking at your life and saying there is no God. Or in other words, yes, God exists, but I'm the ruler of my life. And if God does exist, then he's here to help me to achieve what I want in my life. That is the true God of this age, is it not? We are swimming in a culture that has drank the Kool-Aid down to the dregs that says... You can be whatever you want. You can choose your identity. It's your body and your choice. Aren't we drowning in a society that absolutely hook, line, and sinker believes your identity, your choice? And that is the essence of pride that says, I, the creature, the created one, the one who lives in a world created by God, who breathes air created by Him through lungs that God made for me and thinks with a mind that God gave me and has a heart that pumps blood that God made and makes to continue to pump, I will say to God, I am in charge of my life. I am in charge of my identity. I'm in charge of who I am. That is the essence of pride. All of us have been infected by that way of thinking. Because for our entire life, we have been told, you can be whatever you want to be. Now, I understand the thinking behind that, when that all first started decades ago, this, this, I understand that we wanted to teach young people that you can achieve and you can work hard and you can be diligent and you can, you can attain things. I understand that. But don't you see how the logical conclusion to all of that is where we are right now? You can be whatever you want to be. You can be whatever gender you want to be. You can be whatever sexual preference you want to be nobody can infringe upon your happiness. Nobody should infringe upon what pronoun you want to call yourself because you are the ruler of your life. That is the pride. That is the essence of pride. Nebuchadnezzar manifests that by saying, look at this great Babylon that I've created. But his manifestation of pride is only one variation of it, one flavor of pride. Now, when we fail to understand that Nebuchadnezzar's flavor of pride is not the only flavor of pride, then we also fail to understand how to properly combat pride in our own heart. Because thinking that pride is only this sort of boastful arrogance, We falsely think that the opposite of that would be debasing ourselves. The opposite of pride must be humility. So if the opposite of of arrogance is humility, then then humility must be sort of this self-abasement kind of thing. And that's where we get caught up in what I call counterfeit humility. Counterfeit humility misunderstands pride to be only boastful arrogance. And so, therefore, counterfeit humility says, well, the opposite of that is to debase myself. And so I'm fighting pride by debasing myself. That's counterfeit humility. And counterfeit humility, I'm, I get caught up in my weaknesses rather than my strengths. But you see, the sin of pride is not just boastful arrogance. The sin of pride is putting self at the center. And it matters not if you put self at the center in a glorifying way or a debasing way. It matters for nothing. It's still putting self at the center. And so in essence, we can fight pride with more pride. And that doesn't do anything. We fight pride with more pride by saying the opposite of pride is to debase myself and so I put myself at the center and exalt my weaknesses. Counterfeit pride sounds like this. Oh, I'm I'm not good at anything. No, I can't do anything right. Nothing ever goes my way. Things always go against me. Well, that's you you should expect something like that from me. That's counterfeit pride. And counterfeit pride still has self at the center. Sometimes I hear it said about me, oh, he's a humble person. I am not a humble person. I am a prideful person. I'm a prideful person because I am so often at the center. I think about myself far too much. I'm not humble because I don't exalt myself. Pride is infatuation with self, and it doesn't matter if that infatuation is an infatuation with glorifying self or debasing yourself. The devil cares nothing whether you exalt yourself or debase yourself. He just wants you to think about yourself. The devil cares nothing about whether your flavor of pride is to, is to exalt yourself or lower yourself. He accomplishes the same result either way because you've put self at the center and when self is at the the center, who cannot be at the center? Christ. We cannot fight pride with counterfeit humility. We can only combat pride with true humility. True humility is not putting a lowered version of ourself at the center. True humility is putting the maker at the center, the creator at the center. And that's something only God can do in our hearts. You cannot say to your heart, I'm not going to put myself at the center anymore. I'm done putting myself at the center. I'm going to put Jesus in the middle. You can't say that. That has to be a work of God. And so ultimately fighting pride is God's work in our heart. But if we misunderstand what pride is and fight it with counterfeit humility, we're just pouring more pride onto the fire. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at facebook nc. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.